Let's pray. Lord God, we ask that you would help us to preach. And Lord God, I pray particularly for those who haven't been a part of our uh, Revelation series so far, that you would miraculously uh, minister to their brains. And you would help us, Lord, through the power of your Holy Spirit to see you. So, Lord God, we surrender our, um, our darkness, our selfishness, our flesh to you. And we ask that you would reveal yourself to us, Lord God, in the name of Jesus, through the power of your Spirit. Amen. Revelation chapter 20, verse 1. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain. And he sees the dragon, that ancient serpent, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years and threw him into the pit and shut it and sealed it over him so that he might not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were ended. After that, he must be released for a little while. Then I saw thrones, and seated on them were those to whom the authority to judge was committed. Also I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and for the word of God, and those who had not worshipped the beast or its image and had not received its mark on their forehead or their hands. They came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. That's called the millennium. For 2,000 years, people have wondered, what and when is that? That sounds kind of fun. What and when is that? There have been four primary views so far. Premillennialism, postmillennialism, amillennialism, and dispensational premillennialism. Some of the early church fathers believed that after the bodily return of Christ, believers who had died would be resurrected to then reign with Christ on earth for a thousand years. And then all people would be raised to be finally judged. That's called premillennialism. Christ returns before the millennium. Postmillennialism is the belief that Christ will return after the millennium, postmillennialism, and that the millennium will begin through what is called the ordinary means of grace. In other words, through the preaching of the word, a time will come when Christ rules the world through the church his body, the church. Then after a thousand years, he will return, uh, I guess in another way, to judge the dead. And that's the final, the final judgment. Postmillennialism was the dominant view in America throughout the 19th century. It gave rise to abolition, to temperance, the great missionary movements of the 19th century, the Great Awakening, and the Second Great uh, Awakening. All millennialism has been the dominant view in the church for most of history. If not all of history, it's the view that most of the early church fathers held to. Augustine advocated all millennialism. It was also the view of Martin Luther, John Calvin. It's been the view of the Orthodox Church and is always the Roman Catholic Church. I'm not sure that all millennialism is a great name for this bunch because technically all millennial means uh, no faith in any sort of, or, uh, uh, no millennium. But I think they would say something like, like this. We do believe in the millennium. We think it started the day that Christ died and will end the day that he returns. We think the millennium is now even if it doesn't last a thousand years according to our perception of space and time. The fourth view is the dominant view in America right now. And yet it is a view that no one had even heard of before the middle of the 19th century. It's dispensational premillennialism. It's a bit like historic premillennialism, except for the introduction of an idea that changes the character of the entire Bible, and that's the pre-tribulation rapture. It's the idea that before Christ returns and inaugurates his millennial reign upon the earth, God will rapture his faithful church to heaven so that she won't experience tribulation. The idea that Jesus would be telling us, in this world, you will not have great tribulation is weird enough. 
But that this view, but what this view does to all of, of Scripture and our picture of Jesus, I think, is maybe even weirder still. The dispensational scheme means that most of the revelation and most of the Bible is not about us, but about Israel, who is not us. See, up until the 20th century, almost every believer thought that the church didn't replace Israel but was Israel, faithful Israel. The church taught that the 12, 12 Jewish disciples were like the 12 Jewish patriarchs, and that together we were all like gonna be this new Jerusalem, or were the new Jerusalem coming down. But this new scheme teaches that most of the revelation isn't about us, but about Israel, who is not us. And that's why this crowd got so excited uh, about the creation of this new nation state in the Middle East named Israel in 1943. Now, there are lots of reasons to get excited about a homeland for a persecuted group of people, but this was their reason. A nation named Israel and a stone temple uh, was a necessary precursor to getting raptured at which time the Antichrist will be revealed and start tribulating folks. In the Left Behind series, he's this Romanian dip dictator named Nikolai Carpathia, which makes sense for at the time that those books were conceived, Nikolai Ceausescu was the evil dictator of the actual country of Romania. Romania got its very name from ancient Rome, and at that time it looked like Romania might join the tin nation European Confederacy, uh, just like the tin horns on the beast and the tin toes on, on the beast in, in the Revelation and in the ancient book of, 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 of Daniel. Uh, and Romania was in the north, and that was kind of connected to the Soviet Union, which clearly represented Gog and Magog, who would cross the Euphrates and attack Jerusalem in Israel just before Jesus returned, with all of us riding in his train us who would then rule the earth from old Jerusalem. You know, Jesus said to the thief on the cross, today, this day, you will be with me in paradise. Well, being some sort of government official, like a county commissioner or something, over in Palestine somewhere, does not sound like paradise to me. And so if that's the millennium, I'd rather just skip it. There's a fifth view. That's called the Millennium Falcon. <laughs> but it's far too complicated for here and now. So anyway, which view is correct? What and when is the millennium? This week I asked myself, thinking through this, what would it be like, Peter Hyatt, for you to rule and reign on the earth? I pictured a cigar in my mouth, a glass of whiskey in my hand, my toes in the sand, a, a beautiful woman in a string bikini lying next to me, and immediately I heard this song. Anyway, I should put this back. My point is 
that if ruling and reigning on the earth is uh, what the millennium is all about, well then, that's my idea of the millennium. Except for maybe uh, one other thing. There have been a lot of people that have hurt me over the years. On my good days, I just like an apology, but there's also something in me that would like to see my enemies suffer. Anyway, that's my idea of the millennium. And I think it's probably a rather popular idea of the millennium. It's not too different from the idea in the minds of most young male Islamic jihadists. Minus the whiskey, sub hookah for a Cuban cigar. It's not too different from the idea in the minds of most people, those people being Christian or, or Jewish. It's what I want, it's what I want. But if I got what I want, would I then want what I got? King Solomon got it, remember? We said his book Ecclesiastes all of last year. He ruled and reigned over the nation state of Israel at its greatest extent. He didn't have access to Cuban cigars, but Ecclesiastes 2, listen to this. He writes, I search my heart how to cheer my body with wine. I made great works. I had great possessions. I got many concubines, the delight of the sons of Adam. Amen. And then he writes this. Over and over again he writes it. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity and striving after the wind. You know, King Solomon was the son of David who conquered his enemies and built the stone temple. Jesus was also the son of David who conquered his enemies and claimed to have built a temple. But he wasn't like Solomon, so he crucified him. Well, anyway, what would it mean to live and reign with Christ a thousand years? Let's take a closer look. Then I saw an angel, an angel means messenger, coming down from heaven, holding in his hand the key to the abyssos, the abyss, and a great chain, and he seized the dragon, the ancient serpent, who is the devil, the accuser, and Satan, the adversary, and bound him for a thousand years and threw him into the abyss and shut it and sealed it over him so that he might not deceive the nations any longer. Which raises an interesting question. What nations? And what longer? In the last chapter we saw the word of God cut the flesh from all men, not some, all. That's the end of the nations. And Jesus said it would happen on the last day. You understand, verse 1, John, John writes, then I saw. Not then happened. John must be seeing the same event in space and time from several different perspectives. Well, the messenger seizes the dragon and throws it into the abyss so that he might not deceive the nations any longer until or unto the thousand years were ended, finished, from teleo, after, or literally, this is wild, literally it should be translated with, that's the more com much more common translation of the word, with this or with that, he must be released a little while, a, l a little time. Now, that's a crazy sentence bound that he might not still deceive the nations as far as the thousand years were ended. With this, their binding, he must be released for a small chronos, a small time. Is Satan bound? In, in Luke 10, Jesus says that he saw Satan fall from heaven. Colossians, Paul argues that Satan was defeated on the cross, disarmed on the cross. Hebrews 2.14, we read that Jesus died to destroy, literally render ineffective him who has the power of death, the devil. It would seem that Satan is, is already bound, and yet Peter writes, he prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Paul actually talks about delivering a man. Now listen to this closely. Delivering this man who was having sex with his mother-in-law and wouldn't repent. He talks about delivering a man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh that he might be saved on the day of the Lord. It's like Satan is bound, but the chain is a leash, 
and God is using him for our salvation, our salvation even from ourselves. Now that may all sound abstract to you, but it's no longer very abstract to me. About 20 years ago, I began praying with a woman who was raised in a coven and ritually wed to Satan. For seven years, we worked through layers of demonic oppression tied to all these old memories and rituals, and then this thing showed up and called itself Satan. In visions that my wife had and she had, Jesus said, called him Satan too. I'm not saying you have to believe, okay? So if you're new, don't have to believe. But I think I'm supposed to testify. Satan has no power except the power we give him. We give him power by believing his lies. And all his lies are based on one lie, and that is that God is not salvation. That God does not love you, and God cannot save you. One night, very late, Susan and I were praying for our friend, and in the name of Jesus, we had renounced lies, bound Satan, placed him in this box. We had learned to do that. Susan and my friend saw Jesus in this vision standing by the, the box, and he, he answered in some amazing ways some questions I had. After it was over, Susan said to me, Peter, did you know there was a name on the inside of the box? I saw it, and, and I think Elaine saw it too. It was printed on the inside, the abyss. In the beginning, the earth was without form and void, and darkness was on the face of the abyss. Tehom in Hebrew, abyssos in Greek. God spoke a word, his, his word, he spoke a word into the abyss, and creation happened. 395 AD, Gregory of Nyssa wrote, Christ's divinity was hidden under his humanity like a fishhook under bait and Satan, like a ravenous fish, gulped it down. On the cross, darkness swallowed the light. Death swallowed life. The liar swallowed the truth. I am not swallowed. I am. And creation happened. Adam was made in the image of God, and it is finished. Recently, praying for another friend, I said, Satan, in the name of Jesus, I send you to the void. And I heard him say, I am the void. I think, he, I, think he, I think he might be right on that one. Well, Jesus bound the void, and you have authority over the void. That authority is Christ in you. It's faith having descended into your void. <laughs> He's with you there. Then I saw thrones, and seated on them were those to whom the authority to judge was committed. We just preached two sermons on how the word that we speak, the word of God, is the judgment of this world. And on judgment day, according to Jesus, he will say, whatever you did to the least of these my brothers, you did to me. That's the judgment. So some of you may have been abused. And you thought that you were alone. You were not. And you are not. For Jesus has always been with you, even in, especially in, the abyss. You are experiencing his sufferings, and he is giving you faith, which is himself. He's given you faith, so you would rebuke the dragon, and the dragon would spit you both out of the abyss and onto the land, just as the whale coughed up Jonah onto the beach. Verse 4, Then I saw thrones, and seated on them were those to whom the authority to judge was committed. Also I saw the souls, the psyches, of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus. Do you think that the psyches, the souls of martyrs, shall still, still somehow shape this world even after their body has turned to dust? I don't know if that's what John's talking about and that's exactly what he saw, but the saying is true. The blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. Look at history, that's, that's true. Well, John sees the souls of disembodied witnesses, maturas in Greek, but not just them, all of us to whom judgment 
is committed. I saw the souls, the psyches of those who've been beheaded for the testimony, the witness of Jesus, and for the word of God, and those who had not worshipped the beast or its image and had not received its mark on their foreheads or, or on their hands. In chapter 13, we discovered that everyone who dwelt on the surface of the earth worshipped the beast and therefore seems to have been marked. It seems that this is all people born of flesh in this fallen world. Well, are there people born of something else? As if born from above. And those who had not worshiped the beast or its image and had not received its mark on their foreheads or their hands, they came to life. Literally, the, the Greek is, they lived. They lived. And reigned with Christ for a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not live. John is talking as if everyone on earth is dead and only these people born from above are truly alive. Verse 5, the rest of the dead did not live until the thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. I love that. It's as if John knows that this is all a stretch for the human brain. And, and he says, guys, this is the first resurrection. As if the folks he's sending this letter to ought to know exactly what he's talking about. He's sending it to the seven churches in Asia Minor, all who had been discipled by Paul for three years in the hall of Tyrannus in Ephesus, which you can read about in the book of Acts, all which had received letters from Paul, two of which we still have, Colossians and Ephesians. Ephesians 2.5, listen to this. Paul, Paul writes this. Now, now remember, Paul worked uh, with, with the Jewish authorities and with Rome to kill Christians. I mean, if anybody worshiped the beast, it would have been Paul, right? Paul writes, when we were dead in our trespasses, God made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in, in Christ Jesus, in him. Colossians 2 and 3, Paul writes that although we were dead, God made us alive in Christ by triumphing over the devil on the cross where our flesh was cut away. Then he writes, if then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Paul had taught them and John was teaching them the first resurrection. John 11, Jesus says this, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. <laughs> never die. That means that even the second death won't hurt them. And they have eternal life. In Greek, aeonios life. The word ion means age, and the word ionios means something like of the age, and usually refers to God's age, where life is immortal and imperishable and undying. I, but I think you do lose your life and then find it somehow. But anyway, eternal life refers to the life of the age to come. But in the Gospel of John, over and over again, Jesus talks about having it now, when you believe. So you see, faith, hope, and love in us is not of us. That life is not our life, but descends from above. It's not our own creation. It's God's creation in us, begotten in us by him. So in John 3, to Nicodemus, the Pharisee, Jesus says this, truly, truly, you must be begotten from above. And when Nicodemus says, what the heck are you talking about? Jesus said, how can you, a, a, a teacher of Israel, not understand these things? You see, the whole Old Testament reveals that each of us needs a new heart, <laughs> a new psyche, even new flesh, <laughs> spiritual flesh, a new body. And, and well, that's just not an operation that any of us can pull off. In 1 John 3, John writes this, we know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brethren. Whoever does not love abides in death. When I, when I don't love, that means that I'm abiding, 
remaining, abiding in death. Remember what we've been learning. I am the breath of God, imprisoned in the me that I think I made. My old psyche, my ego, it's why I am alone, separated from God and separated from my neighbor. To be alone is death. We died the day we took the life from the tree and called it our own. It's the day that we began to grow an ego and so began to hide. At the cross, God cuts away our flesh. At the cross, we lose our psyche and find it in Christ. We become the body of Christ. It's the death of death. The second death, which is the life. Life is in him and he is the life in me, flowing through me like blood in a body. You see, he is God's judgment in me and expressed as the new me. But you know, I think he may have been there all along. This is a profound mystery, but scripture says that we are his temple. And that means that in the inner sanctuary of each soul within each person, there is a throne. And maybe, I mean, I was just thinking about this, maybe the judgment of God is upon that throne all along, but hidden behind a drawn curtain for a time. But when Christ died, that curtain was torn and the judgment of God began to invade your temple from the inside out like a spring of living water. When he fully saturates your temple, love will no longer be a law. Love will literally be your life. Love will not be the muffled voice of conscience that haunts the depths of your soul or constrains you from the outside like some commandment in some old book. Love will be the desire and the decision, the judgment that animates your whole body all the time. In other words, God's will will be your will. And your will will be God's will. In other words, you will will what you want and you will want what you will. Your will will be entirely free. <laughs> and you will will creation itself. I mean, you'll like turn water into wine whenever you, or whiskey, whenever you want, want to drink. You'll walk on the sea as if that was just like normal. You'll move mountains just because you, you want to. You and Jesus together on the throne in the sanctuary of your soul will rule reality itself. We'll talk more about that later, but Jesus, John, and Paul talk as if we can and are beginning to rule right now. They talk as if we're princesses and princes whose father is absolute love and has absolute power. Princesses and princes still in need of discipline, but right now beginning to inherit all things. In Luke 10, Jesus says this, I saw Satan fall, and look, I have given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing shall harm you. Nothing. All the disciples were tortured <laughs> and either murdered or imprisoned, and yet Jesus says nothing shall harm you. I would think that that stuff harms you. But all of it, beatings, imprisonments, what a strange thought, must help you, like discipline. In the Gospel of John, Jesus says to his disciples, if you ask anything in my name, I'll do it. Ah! Then just a little later, he says, henceforth, so far, what, after years, you have asked nothing in my name. His name means God is salvation, and it's the very definition of love. I think they were just beginning to learn to love love, and so are we. Jesus said, it's better, it's more desirable, it's more wonderful, it's better to give than to receive, as if he enjoyed sacrificial love. Well, to rule and reign with Jesus is to love 
like Jesus. Revelation 1.5, John already wrote this. Jesus is the ruler of the king. He is the ruler of the kings on earth, like all authority has been given unto him or something. He is the ruler of the kings on earth and has made us kings and priests. John thinks that we are ruling right now and priesting right now, whatever that means. Verse 5, this is the first resurrection. Blessed, which by the way means happy, it's just what it means, happy. Happy and holy, which means strange. Strangely happy, happily strange, is the one who shares in the first resurrection. Over such the second death has no power, but they shall be priests of God and of Christ, and they will reign with him for a thousand years. Beloved, do not overlook this one fact, writes Peter. And then he quotes the psalm. With the Lord, a day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years is as a day. Not equal to a day, as a day. And, and whenever, literally it should be whenever, and whenever the thousand years are ended, Satan will be released from his prison and will come out to deceive the peoples that are at the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog. Now we saw all of this in chapter 16. You can also read about it in Ezekiel 38 and 39. To gather them for battle, their number is like the sand of the sea, and they march, not, not will march, but did march, up over the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints, the holy ones, that's us, according to John, and the beloved city, that's also us. But fire came down from heaven and consumed them. And the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and Phaon, divinity, where the beast and the false prophet were, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever for ages and ages. Years ago, praying for our friend, I discovered that calling down the fire of God, the glory of God, or the love of God, all seemed to have the same exact effect on the evil one. It burned him. And I began to realize that the fire of God and the life of love are the same thing. And that thing, who is God, has absolute power over the evil one. And yet, praying for people in those situations is usually an incredible battle. So I used to wonder, God, why is this so hard? And I've come to realize that conquering Satan really isn't hard because he has already been conquered. What's hard is romancing the human heart. Christ has utter power and authority over the evil one, and yet Christ is romancing the human heart, the heart of his bride. When I'm lifted up, I will romance all people to myself. And you see, this battle to romance is the very battle that each of us is called to every day. It's believing for ourselves and helping others to believe that God is love. And his word is salvation. And so he loves you absolutely. Well, years ago, early one morning, after hours of struggle, after hours of speaking light into darkness, truth into lies, after seeing Satan go, and while Jesus was talking to my friend in a vision, I said to my friend, kind of perturbed, I said, hey, ask Jesus this question. Why don't you just throw Satan into the lake of fire? So she did. Jesus, why don't you just throw Satan into the lake of fire? She was quiet for a moment, and then she said, I just heard him say, I am all the time. I suddenly realized that by loving our friend, we had been throwing Satan into the lake of fire all the time. That's why Paul tells us to be kind to our enemies. For in so doing, we heap burning coals on the head of the enemy. You see, the fire of love destroys the real enemy, literally casts Satan into the lake of fire, and turns our enemies into friends. But even more than friends, the bride of Christ. He said, I am all the time. So let me remind you of this timeline that I've been showing you. 
I've been struggling to, to, to get it right. I'm trying to express this biblical idea that was prominent in the early church. It's the idea, it was also prominent in, in Judaism at, around that time and still is in some circles today. It's the idea that all chronological time is represented by these seven days or ages or ions. They, they exist in the reality of God's eternity, God's age, God's rest. All time exists in I am. And I am is at rest. God's rest is expressed in time each week in the form of our rest on the Sabbath day, the seventh day. It's then we remember God's rest when it is finished and everything is good. So every week looks like this, right? Once a year, the Jews were commanded to observe an eighth day that was seen as an endless seventh day, that is, an eternal Sabbath. Jesus was crucified at the end of the sixth day and rose on the eighth day. Scripture claims that Christ's sacrifice was the end of the ages, says that in two places. That is, the end of chronological time. So, at the cross, God's eternity invaded our temporality and has been invading ever since Good Friday. Or maybe people have just become aware of it ever since Good Friday. Whatever the case, I think the seventh age, which is the seventh millennium, is represented by the seventh day in time when we walk in the finished work of the cross when we walk in the newness of life, eternal life. It's the age in which Christ's body is rising in space and time. We'll need to say more about that. But you see, I think that makes me a pre-post-awe millennialist. A pre-post-awe millennialist. It means that this is the millennium. And Christ is coming all the time. Satan is bound and being cast into the lake of fire all the time. And we reign and rule whenever we walk by faith and love and maybe even when we don't. So anyway, what does it mean to reign and rule with Christ upon the earth? Well, not quite, not quite. I once read about a man that spoke to an emissary from another land, another kingdom. He, he asked, what miracles has your Lord worked? And the emissary replied, well, there are miracles and there are miracles. In your land, it is regarded a miracle if God does someone's will. In our land, it is regarded as a miracle if someone does the will of God. You know, if I were to reign and rule on the earth, it would mean that either I got God to agree with my will, or God got me to agree with his will. If God did my will, I think I might create hell for myself. And maybe I already have. Like Solomon, I'd moan over and over again, vanity of vanities, all is vanity. But if my will became God's will, if I really willed God's will this, this moment, if I really willed God's will this moment, what would change? I don't think anything would change. God already gets his will, right? Ephesians 1.11, he accomplishes all things according to the counsel of his will, all things. And scripture reveals that evil is not truly a thing, but a, a no thing, it's a void that God is filling with his word who is his will. Paul writes, if God is for us, who can be against us? <laughs> In all these things we are hypernikao, super conquerors, more than conquerors, 
through him who loved us. He works all things together for good with those who love him and are called according to his purpose. To be saved is to learn that you have always been loved and called according to his purpose, which is to make each of us in his image in order that we might share in his joy. These slight momentary afflictions, beatings, imprisonments, writes Paul, prepare us for an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. So by faith, at any moment, you can surrender all your moments to Jesus, and in that moment, know that every moment is exactly as it should be, past, present, and future, and could not be better than it that is right now. If this moment I willed what God wills, absolutely nothing would change except me. I'd be happy. I'd know that I am infinitely loved. And, and so I would long to love, and so I would love in, in the future. But instantly, I'd be insanely happy. And then, do you see that God's will would actually be my will? And so I would will all things in absolute freedom. God and I would rule the universe from the throne in the sanctuary of my own soul. That's kind of cool to think about. But has any man, has any man ever actually constantly willed God's will? Absolutely willed it. Yeah, absolutely. He changed water into wine. He walked on the sea. He could move mountains. He did all sorts of miracles, but he didn't hate those that hated him. In fact, he let them torture him and nail him to a tree. That's how he conquered his enemies, and that's the greatest miracle, the day he did no miracle. It's not the day that God did man's will, but the day that a man finally did God's will. He didn't hate his enemies, he died for his enemies, for he believed that his enemies were his bride. That's how he gets the girls. <laughs> oh yeah, beautiful girls. Next chapter, a new Jerusalem descends from heaven adorned as a bride. You are that beautiful bride. And he is right now romancing you. You are his bride, his body, his temple, and when you trust in him, you experience the blessings of the millennium. You begin to reign over all creation as a king, and you begin to love like the high priest. Actually, you are the body of the high priest who offered himself for all. In 1990, about the time that Tim LaHaye and Jerry Jenkins would have been conceiving of the Left Behind series, I was sent on a trip to Romania to train um, newly liberated pastors how to be the church. And it turns out that they trained me how to be a Christian. For 45 years under Nicolae Ceausescu, Christianity had, had been illegal in Romania. Some of these guys, I mean, they showed me the scars on their body from attempts that had been made on their lives. Some of them had lost friends and family who had been executed by the state for their faith, but only 10 months earlier, they had all toppled the government of Romania. Just as Telemachus toppled Rome by announcing, proclaiming the word. I've told you the story of how they gathered around the house of one persecuted pastor, Lazlo Tokish, a few weeks before Christmas and literally would not stop singing until thousands of them had been gunned down in the central square of Timisoara by the secret police and the dictator was deposed by the people. People who wouldn't stop singing about Jesus. I think it's the greatest revolution of the 20th century because of the revolution in the hearts of the people, particularly a few people, uh, people that look just like Jesus. One of them uh, is my friend Cornell Yova. I haven't talked to Cornell in years, but uh, I met Cornell, uh, and I think it was in Oradia. He took me around, he showed me 
his town. And I remember wherever Cornell went, um, he appeared to be happy. And to whoever he talked to, he appeared to just be full of joy. It was as if he knew that he was absolutely loved. And so he absolutely loved everyone that he met. One night, we ate dinner at his house. After supper, he pulled a box down from the shelf in the living room. The box was like a shrine. He held it like a shrine. It was full of pictures of, of his wife. His face glowed as he spoke of her. You could make out her features in the face of Cornell's six-year-old daughter who came in to tell us all good night before she went to bed. A few years earlier, Cornell's wife had been diagnosed with cancer. He prayed fervently for a miracle. He read medical books trying to find a cure. Finally, through Christians in Great Britain, a bone marrow transplant was arranged and paid for. All he needed was an exit visa. The authorities told Cornell, we will grant you the visa, but only if you renounce your faith and begin to inform on the pastors in your underground church. Cornell told me how he struggled. He'd been spied upon, persecuted, interrogated, even radiated. He lived in a house where the former pastor had actually been um, electrocuted by the secret police putting power lines onto the drain pipe so he'd touch them and, and he died. Well, Cornell and his wife decided what to do. He said, Brother Peter, it was the hardest day of my life. That was the day shortly after the revolution when he held his 30-year-old wife in his arms as she slowly passed from this world, leaving Cornell and his five-year-old daughter behind, left behind. When he told the story to my friend Steve, as Cornell showed Steve the box of pictures, Steve started to cry. And Cornell looked at Steve with great compassion, and he said, Brother Steve, don't cry. It's a privilege to suffer for Jesus. Cornell will get his bride back and all things with her. He will inherit all things, but for now, He's ruling and reigning in the millennium. This is the millennium. Don't miss it. And so he took the bread and broke it, saying, this is my body which is given to you. Take and eat. And in the same manner he took the cup, saying, this cup is the covenant in my bride. In my, in my blood and in my bride. <laughs> Drink of it, all of you. You see, this is the judgment of God. This is the will of God. In this is love. When you have faith in love, you begin to rule and reign. For this will becomes your will, and when that happens, you will be happy and strange. Strangely happy and happily strange. For this world will no longer shape you. You will begin to transform this world. In Jesus' name, believe the gospel. Amen. So, Father, I thank you that you are perfect in all of your ways, even to us. And Father, I pray for those, particularly this week before Halloween, who in the dead of the night don't seem to hear your voice, but they hear the voice of the evil one. And God, I think we all hear the voice of the evil one, but maybe not like these, because they hear it the way we hear the voices of each other. They're haunted by it. Lord God, I pray particularly for these this week, that Holy Spirit, you would rip the curtain and you would speak from the depths of your soul saying, I'm with you. And that, Lord, when you whisper the glory of your love, they will believe. Come, Holy Spirit. 
faith, hope, and love rise in your temple, occupy your temple, and be glorified in us. In Jesus' name, amen. So anyway, John sends a revelation to these seven little churches, and uh, they're under persecution. They think they're about to be utterly crushed. Some are dying. Um, some are doing relatively well, they think, but they're rich and they're dead. Um, some, their love has grown weak, and he sends them this letter. And what's the point of the letter to these haggard, weak Christians? I think this is the point. You don't think it's true, but it is true. You reign and you rule. And now from 2,000 years later, looking back, we can say, oh my gosh, it's true. Not just in some age by and by that we, we can't quite access now, but right in history. Study history. Those people are the reason that you're here this morning. They uh, change the world. Paul said, um, there is this immeasurable greatness of power in us who believe. And if you've ever experienced a miracle, which I have a few, and I have a real skeptical mind, but a few where I went, holy crap, that was in me? That just came out of me? That's shocking. Um, well, well, you know, God really has all power. I mean, the whole thing about talking about God's power in a way just seems stupid to me. He's speaking everything into existence right now. So changing a donut into a, I don't know, a pizza or whatever is not a big deal for God. But there is this power he has that I think he's wanting to show us. A power that is greater than any other power because it's himself. And that is the power to love in freedom. That means that that is your desire no matter if this entire world turns against you. You keep loving because you love love. That's what happened on that cross that day. And that power is the power of romance. <laughs> It's how he gets the girl, which is us. And so may you believe the gospel and love in freedom. That's the doorway <laughs> to being uh, eternally happy and strange. Amen. Amen? Hey, and before you go, let me just mention we have people that were down front that would love to pray with you. And then I keep wanting to do this. I have one minute left till officially we're done, so I can. Um, I wanted to, if you're interested in Revelation stuff, because it really is kind of fascinating from a whole bunch of angles, uh, particularly the, uh, the millennium that we started talking about this week, I found this book to be really helpful, The Millennial Maze by Stanley Grins. He's a professor from Trinity Seminary where Kathleen was a student. And then oh, oh, this whole time I found this really interesting, Revelation 4 Views of Parallel Commentary. And what he does is he just goes through and he takes what he thinks is the best of each of the four different, four different positions regarding the Revelation and presents them. If anything, it's kind of amusing because I think the most wonderful truth is the Revelation isn't just about the Pope and the Visigoths, which is what people thought it was for a long time. It's about Jesus and you. So uh, believe it. Amen.